an 8-bit Rocket Studios production. We were children of the Silicon Revolution, an X-generation conscripted to fight the console and home computer wars. A product of an analog 70s childhood, we came of digital age in the 80s, believing we could affect the world 8 bits at a time. Armed with joysticks, full-stroke keyboards, jolt cola, and MTV haircuts, we proceeded into the vertical blank. There, we stayed up late at night, devising incantations from D&D rulebooks and beginners' all-purpose symbolic instruction code. Video games were the match, and programming was the fuse, as the infinite possibilities of the digital world exploded into the internet age to come. We are Generation Atari. Hey, Jeff, it's Halloween. It's Halloween, Steve. And we have a couple new things for this episode. We do. Um, first off, we're going to talk about the top 25 things that scare Atari fans. Ooh. Well, at least to scare us, right? Because well, they scare us as I mean, Atari There's fans. some Atari fans that won't agree with some of these, I guess. You know. So um, let's let's get into that right now. Oh uh, wait, now hold on a second. What episode is this, Steve? S three E twenty two. This think. is season three, episode twenty two. Now this was going to be about Atar- our Atari ST game, Zambul's of Poker Dice, but I guess that'll be the next one. That'll be the next we one. should never, ever say what the next episode is gonna be because it never is true. It's never true. So let's start. We actually have twenty seven things that scare. Do we want to start at twenty seven and go down to one? Number twenty seven the XEGS. While we love it now, the pastel-colored buttons and old-as-dirt pack-end titles made sure that we would cringe at the thought back when it was released. We own them, and we love them now. But the Zegs, which is not what we should call it, it's the XEGS, the Zegs was a very weird console. Why have three game systems out at once in 1987? They should have doubled down on the 7800. I think the problem was that they didn't want to do any more engineering in 8-bit land. So a combination of the 8-bit and 7800 as a machine that was compatible with both would have been the right way to go. Oh, yeah. But that was never going to happen. So, And not even yeah. getting a pokey into the 7800. Just like, let's get them out the door. Because think about that. An XGS that was 7800 compatible would also be 2600 compatible. And, yes. and that would have been... You know, like, okay, so here, now, now every game we've ever made, besides the 5200 games, but we're going to port them, will will be available on the XEGS. Well, every 8-bit game, yes. And you have to admit, XEGS is a good name. Yeah, yeah. If that was the only system out by Atari at the time, it would have been great. But now it sort of scared us at the time because it looked like Atari did not know what they were doing. And they kind of didn't. I mean, they knew something, but they didn't know. I mean, they knew way more than the current Atari does. And I never saw one anywhere either. So the thing about it was at the time, we were actually going to Toys R Us a lot and other places like KB and the software, etc. cetera, and the mall. I never once saw an Atari console after a certain amount of time actually for I think sale. we saw the XCGS only in person, believe it or not, at Federated Group. 
Could have been. Right. Could have been. Okay, number number 26 is yours. 26. Scary. Atari ST ports of Amiga games. There was a time before the rise of the Amiga 500 that Amiga games were poor ports of Atari ST games. They weren't nearly as fast, but they sometimes were given better music and sound. When the Amiga became more popular, Amiga games were ported back to the ST with little care, just like when ST games were ported to the Amiga. If done right, the game could be amazing on the ST or STE. This was rarely the case as development houses started to become more professional and marketing driven in the 90s. Yeah, I, I personally remember going to software, etc., and seeing the Amiga version of Xenon 2. And I was like, wow, I love Xenon 2 on the ST, but this is so much better. The music and how the animation flowed was so much better, I couldn't believe it. It was scary. Yeah, scary to know that the Amiga was so much better. And it could have been an Atari machine. It too. could have been an Atari machine. The STE actually could have competed, but there's so many STEs out there that um, everyone what they built for the lowest. Yeah, I mean, once you build once you build the hardware for the first version, it's really hard to Well, especially if the first version sells. Things. See, the thing is, the first version sold, too. So you got 3 million Atari STs out there by the time you're trying to push the STE. And they, did, they sold a bunch of STEs. If you look now, you'll find more STEs than STs. But still, it's just, just what happens. So you already have your main platform out. And, and that platform's good. I mean, I, I, I have a whole bunch of games up there on my three videos that show all kinds of incredible ST games. There's STE updates and things like that. And the games are good. Well, I mean, the best game of that era, in my opinion, Dungeon Master works on your garden variety Atari ST. ST. So, uh, you know, it doesn't, doesn't need an ST or anything. So yeah. they could make good stuff with it. Okay, number 25. Mainstream books, movies, and TV shows about video game history. We watch and we cringe and hope that Atari gets a fair shake. Rarely does it happen. When Atari is mentioned, they mention E.T. and Pac-Man and hardly anything else. Atari Game Over is the rare exception. Even though it's about E.T., they still do a very good job. Oh, of yeah, but it's, a, it's actually a, a researched version of the, of the E.T. story. One of the things that really bothered me was like at the end of the 80s when you have all these dumb news shows because news, news magazine shows were dumb then and they're still dumb now. And they would say things like the 80s, the Nintendo decade. I'm like, no, 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 no. It started as the Atari decade. You can't say that. You can't, if anything, you can't it was, that. you know, the, the Commodore 64 decade that sold more, more, and more than the NES for most of that uh, decade. For that time. Yeah. Yeah. So, main, yeah, mainstream, when, when, when mainstream video game history is told, Atari gets a short shrift, and it scares us to watch. We watch, but it's scary. And there's many, many people that are losing that history. Sometimes the history is told, and you get a little bit of 2600. Most of the, everything else in the 80s is forgotten. So even, like, the Intellivision, ColecoVision, 5200, the computers, everything is forgotten, and then it jumps to the NES. Well, so, I, even, I even count, like, the Intellivision, ColecoVision, Fairchild, all that stuff as generation atari because people for that's all part of the same thing right that people, people forget, forget that existed there was this whole rich history and culture that existed before nintendo and part of our podcast is to keep that alive or at least at least let people know that it existed exactly. um, because video games didn't start video game culture didn't start with nintendo it, it started much earlier and then nintendo capitalized on it and they did a really good job number 24 modern arcades Modern arcades scare us because we know we won't find any Atari games anymore. 
when we do go to Dave and Buster's, we have to pretend we are playing Atari games. If we do find games with Atari's IP, they're probably not in an actual arcade, but in a casino trying to steal people's money. Atari IP licensed for gambling. Yeah, that's the last time I saw like a centipede was at uh, the Aria Casino in um, this January at CES. I get when they try to appeal, you know, like gambling machines to adults by using old IP, but, um, you know, mixing Atari's fun video games with gambling to me is sort of uh, a bastardization. And it's one of the things that really bothers me about this Atari coin and the stuff that the new Atari's doing with that is like gaming and games are two different things. Right. And video gaming, like, you know, gambling gaming is something that video games were accused of and pinball machines were accused of back in the, in the seventies and eighties. And people had to fight against that idea. And the idea that the current Atari would, would just miss that basic fact is really bothers me. It scares me to be perfectly honest. Right. Right there. It's, it's sad. What's number 23, Steve? 23, the worst game ever. The, 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 just talk about the worst game ever scares us. It scares us because yes, Pac-Man and ET were terrible games or not terrible, but they were, they weren't great. They're they were scary. scary because their existence meant that uh, Atari was on the wrong track and started to lose money and that marketing people spent more time selling the ideas of games than actually spending on the spending time or effort or money on the games being made, right? To put more memory in or whatever. It scares us that people call those the worst games ever because they're not. It makes us feel like people don't do their research. My vote for the worst game ever on the VCS is Starship because it's terrible, but at least it tried and it was even discontinued. What do you think of the worst game ever is, Jeff? Um, you know, I, I want to, I've never actually tried Starship to be honest, but the, so of all the cartridges I've purchased and played, Warp Lock and Bugs by Data Age are the two worst games I've ever played. Bugs quite possibly is the worst game except for the Mystique porn games. E. I mean, E.T. is, is amazing yeah. by comparison. By comparison, E.T. Right? E. and Pac-Man are just incredible compared to those. I mean, Pac-Man is actually a decent game if it wasn't Pac-Man. Yeah, uh, Pac-Man just needed to not have a second player option to hold data and memory so Todd Fry could have put in the up and down animations and then it would be fine. That's all they needed. Yeah. It they needed cool that way. 16 more bytes of memory. Right. If he didn't have to put a two-player game, it would, he could have done it, too. Right. Exactly. He so. needed 16 bytes. But marketing wanted to put those variations on the back as, as if people even cared how yeah, many variations no one cared at that were. time. They were just, it was anyway. like... I guess to them, like variations are kind of like piece count in a poly pocket. Package. Sure, yeah, but I mean, it didn't. They they were still working on something that people might have cared about in 1977, not 1982. Yeah, you know, it could have been one variation and just be a damn good version of Pac-Man, and, and nobody would. I mean, people would have thought that was great. Nobody would have would have cared. Exactly. Okay, number twenty-two. 22. Google buying old Atari buildings. Google is buying all the old Atari buildings around 1196 Borges Avenue in Sunnyvale, and they're renovating them. This makes me mad. It makes me sad. It scares me because I want them to retain their 70s glory for when Atari returns for real, right? Because Atari, when Atari actually returns, it needs to um, and go into the original buildings, right? Because Atari's going to return, right? Yeah. <laughs> Someday. I mean, Google. <laughs> if Google could, Google has enough money to like just 
bring back all the systems that they want to, but they're not going to. Yeah, I mean, history is slipping away, and a company like Google could do it; they could preserve it. But I wonder why Google doesn't care about the history of the. They got all. Anymore. They got their own. They got their own. I know, and it, that seems really short-sighted to me. Like they, they should. They, they have like you know, they use like Atari stuff in their like secret browser games, like the breakout thing and stuff like that. It'd be cool if they actually just you know, at least preserved a little bit of the history, made a little Atari museum or something, you know, something, anything to, to show that they understand where they are. But those Silicon Valley high-tech companies with billions and billions of dollars just don't seem to understand the basic things about what made them a reality. Atari was the first company to, to really show the way that uh, Silicon Valley companies should be. And they should salute that. I mean, there were problems with it too, but I mean, they should at least understand where they came from. 21, selling off Atari IP. When Atari SA sold the rights to Battlezone and Math Grand Prix, it was like a shot to the heart of Atari fans. We want the band back together. It's kind of like um, the last three episodes of Star Wars to me. It's like selling George Lucas sold to Disney and then they just did something weird. Yeah, yeah, but they'll, they'll fix that. But I mean, it. selling Favreau's off... Favreau's coming in to fix it. It seems so short-sighted for them to start selling off the games one at a time. I know that I guess they needed money, but it just seems like it all idea. would have... Why not just sell the whole thing to someone who cares instead of selling off... I think at the time, the time... I think they could make more money... You, you make more money stripping a car than you do selling the whole thing. I know. Thanks to that episode of Chips we just, we just yeah. went into. 20... The SID chip on the Commodore 64. Or the Atari SID fans, chip. I don't know if it's SID or SID. SID. I don't know. We, maybe that's what someone can I'm tell us. Say, it's not. They're like, you don't like Zegs, but it's not SID. It's SID. Okay. So, go on. Okay. Atari fans know how great the 8-bit computer was, is. Things like FujiNet make it even better 41 years later. But the one thing that scared us in the 80s was the music chip on the Commodore 64. Well, we love the Pokey. We loved it. The SID or SID chip was a monster synth. It still makes amazing music today. Yes. Doesn't does. 8-bit we weapon like does a lot of their stuff with the with the SID oh, yeah. chip? Because it's yeah, just it's just awesome. And the ST didn't get as good a chip in it, did it? To make music? No, the ST actually the Commodore 64. Okay, this is the thing. So the the ST has a chip that's very similar to the SNES in it, if you can believe that. But the problem with it is it was made to do sampled sound. So you need to have stereo out for it to sound good. They didn't. And it only has one stereo channel, so there's a few problems with it. The rest of it is really just sort of a noisemaker, and then there are, there are some square waves. Commodore 64, while it wasn't designed, the SID chip or, or SID chip was not designed to do sampled sound, especially not 16-bit sampled sound, what it could create was sound that was much more rich than what you get in sort of the low, let's just call it low poly, but low resolution version of the YM chip that was put in the ST. Um, oh, I see. And so that was fixed in later versions of the ST, but still that's what you got. And so if right. someone who knew what they were doing could do a really good job with it, and there are some great games out there where the ST sound on that, on that chip sounds great, but with SID chip it was much easier. Number 19, Nintendo. Yes, scary Nintendo. We love Nintendo now. Nintendo flies the classic game flag better than anyone. But in the 80s, Nintendo was the big bad. So bad that Atari and magazines even made some pretty racist cartoons about them. Also, it scares us that Atari could have marketed the NES, but it didn't. It scares us for two reasons. One, 
It could have meant Atari would have lived on and it was a terrible missed opportunity. Two, it scares us because deep down we know Atari was managed so terribly at the time and they could very well have ruined the NES too. And maybe video game history would have been altered immensely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, Nintendo and all their legal stuff was pretty terrible in the 80s and early 90s and, and pretty much made it so uh, Atari Corp could not compete at all. Same with Sega. But Sega showed how you could compete, at least with the Genesis, right? How you could, if you made good enough games and had the right attitude, you actually could come back. So, you know, yeah. it's Atari's fault. The history of how the Genesis was... Um, was delivered and marketed in the U.S. It should be used in business schools as how to take back market share. I mean, there is there is that movie on CBS All Access about, I'm about to watch it. Wars. I was about to all turn about it on it. after this. Okay, number eighteen, the Atari flashback consoles. Now, don't get me wrong; they look cool in the box, and the cool idea is, and it's nice to see the Atari name on the shelf somewhere at right. the store now. And flashback number two is actually really good. Um, that's the one Kurt did, right? Mendel did. That actually is the, the actual Atari hardware. You could even put a cartridge in if you modified it. Well, number <coughs> one, number one, even though it's NES on a chip, does have 700 games on it, and that's cool. Yeah, but they're, they're still like... They're I know still that. Like I know remade that. 700 games. Like most of them had... Most of the early ones have NES. They're just NES remakes. They're not the real games, so they don't well, retain... They the, took the uh, 6502 code and they ported it to NES and they just redid the way that the tiles are done. So okay. it wasn't 100% just crap. Anyway, I, I'm I talking about they redo the way the tiles are displayed. They redid the display. Yeah, it just it just doesn't feel right. No, it just doesn't no, no, feel no. right to me. The flashback name scares us because we know when we see it, it's going to be kind of cheap. And we don't want cheap. We want nuances. We want actual these days. Yeah, that's why um, I really like the Retron 77 because it, it feel, it's substantial, feels substantial, and they're not afraid of ROMs. There's versions of the flashback where you can put ROMs on them, too. They're just, I don't think you ever need to have an Atari console that has the remote control controllers and no others, because you can't use those controllers in anything else. And you also can't use any other controllers with it if they break. Yeah. That's kind of, a, kind of a weird thing. But I do like seeing them in the, in the stores. And I have bought quite a number of Atari flashback consoles. But, but when you see it, does it kind of scares you a little bit? Yeah, as long as I see on the front that they have Frogger and Activision games, I think it makes it a little better. But, but, it, but what scares me about it is that it's kind of like that's all people are going to remember about Atari. Right. And that just kind of bothers me. Right. Wasn't Atari just that cheap thing you bought at the store that had a bunch yeah, of exactly. crappy games on it? It's like, well, kind of. 17, Jeff. The size of the Lynx compared to the Game Boy. The size of Lynx was scary. So it, was Lynx giant. Was, it was giant. It was like... Like it a was monster. A, like was, haunted my dreams how big it was. It was a menacing console. The Lynx was cool, but it was giant. It was not as much portable as it was luggable. It ate batteries like they were potato chips. It should have been Atari Corp's greatest success. It's still an amazing platform for games, though. The Game Boy was far less powerful, not backlit, but the batteries lasted a long time. And it had Tetris. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a sec. I love the Lynx, but it was scary how big it was. Yeah. Even that commercial where the kid takes it into the bathroom at school. It's like, oh my God, it's huge. And he has to pull it out of like his giant backpack because it was giant. I think it took up the entire backpack. It probably did. Okay, number 16, Atari Soft. Why does Atari Soft scares us? Well, one... Atari Soft scared us because in some cases they made better versions of Atari games than Atari did for their own consoles. But on the other hand, it could have lasted long past 1984. It should be going now. 
I should still be going now. And in right. fact, I read, I was reading an issue of Atari Explorer yesterday, and they had an article about Atari Soft. And it turns out they they did call their internal software group Atari Soft, but they were dedicated to making business software at the time. I don't know what happened to that idea or that group after that. So it kind of stayed, it kind of did stay alive, but as like a zombie, not as a real thing. So the death of Atari Soft scares us because it should have been so much better. Yeah. And it should have been, I mean, they really could have used that label and put lots of games out and stuff. Talked about yes. This before. Okay. Number 15. Tengen Tetris. Tengen was the consumer division of Atari games. In some ways, it was the spiritual successor to Atari Soft. They made some decent games for the NES, Gauntlet, RBA Baseball, Super Sprint, but Tetris was their undoing. They thought they had the rights to the game and made it for the NES. Then they were sued into oblivion by the monolith that was Nintendo. Scary Nintendo, because Nintendo scares us. Scary Nintendo. This was 90s Nintendo. Nintendo No, well, 80s. Oh, 80s. 80s and 90s Nintendo. Tetris should have been Atari Games Tengen's big win, but became their biggest defeat. This is an addition to why Nintendo scares us. Their license agreements made the free love era of computers and video game software of the late 70s and early 80s into a corporate legal suing machine. The punk rock era of video games and computer games was over yeah that scares us that and also their version of tetris was better yeah and I, I think that the whole idea that i mean the concept even that you would that you could make software for other systems was kind of kind of ruined by nintendo and their licensing agreements not that they didn't help them initially because you know it, it kind of solved the, the quality was problem. good the quality was good i think um, and I, what i meant to say was that tengen version of tetris was supposedly better right so. right okay number 14 warner brothers Warner Brothers owns all of Atari Games' IP and sits on it doing next to nothing. All their great games like Marble Madness, Paperboy, Gauntlet. Well, they do something with Gauntlet sometimes. Primal Rage, Hard Driving are stuck in the Warner vaults. Warner bought Atari in 1976, sold them in 84, and rebought Coin-Op IP several years ago. It's scary to us that it's been buried alive. Very being scary. buried alive is scary, yeah. Yes, being buried alive is incredibly scary. I really, they really should they really should do something with it. It's really disappointing that they don't. Alright, here's something really scary. When Atari shows up in movies and TV, and especially movies made out of Atari products or the prospect of them, especially the Asteroids the movie. The proposed Asteroids movie. Well, the proposed Asteroids movie. A Nolan Bushnell movie produced by Leonardo DiCaprio. That still is in development hell. By yeah, it's the way. been in development hell for I don't know how many years, like 10, 15. That's how most movies are, though. So Yeah, we um, think but if, these are going to be horrible, right? Yeah, this, I mean, what's an Asteroids movie going to be? Um, anyway, we cringed at the adventure portion of Ready Player One. It wasn't bad, but we still cringed at it. because it actually, It's so funny because they tried to not show the game as much as possible. Yeah, it's hard to... Yeah. Um, it'd be great if they showed like the 5200 version of Adventure or something like that. Where are those movies, though? From the, from those, those movies that never came out. I mean... Asteroids um, and Centipede and all those yeah. other movies that shot. There's a couple times when uh, Atari's been pretty good. In uh, Freaks and Geeks, they had a full Atari 2600 episode that was pretty good. It um, had errors though, like they showed fifty two hundred games when it fifty two hundred didn't exist and stuff like that. But they I just mean, it was okay. used the boxes they had. I'm pretty sure. And then in uh, Holton Catch Fire in season two, one of the guys buys a Commodore sixty four and an Atari ST, so he gets some new computers into his garage and he starts uh-huh. playing with them. It's pretty cool. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Okay. So number twelve. Oh. ColecoVision. ColecoVision had these weird and amazing license games that made Atari fans drool. Zaxxon, Amazing, Buck Rogers, Donkey Kong, Mr. Do, Time Pilot, Tapper, Adventure, 
all those games made the 5200s tired set of samey games like Centipede and Battlestone feel old. It scared us that Atari was going to be usurped by ColecoVision in 1982. I'd say one thing, though. The scary part was seeing them in static screenshots. Yeah, okay, good point. Good point. Because but that's all we saw. We only had our magazines to show, so we didn't have YouTube or anything. So right, we, right. We saw so, the screenshots and we're like, oh my God. Yeah, I know the, the frame rate and the scrolling was not that great when you actually played it. Yeah, uh, so the second, so on another note, ColecoVision scrolling was scary for ColecoVision owners. It was pretty abysmal. But I mean, it, it's ColecoVision scared us because all of a sudden our Atari was, it was, it was going to lose to ColecoVision. And the 5200 did lose to ColecoVision. Okay. Okay, we're getting close to the top 10. Number 11, December 1978. Nolan Bushnell fired. He wanted an, a new console to replace 2600. And he wanted to make more pinball machines. And there's some other stuff too. But I mean, the, the point is that December 1978 is scary because with Bushnell fired, that meant that all the innovation that Atari was doing was pretty much done. And if you think about it, since they'd already worked on the 8-bit computers, pretty much everything that was ever going to be released by Atari for real was gone was done by 1978 and and after Bushnell was gone nothing really new ever came out really new on the hardware wise except for the 7800 which was never released right so which was barely released right that's why it's scary that day was scary because that's pretty much the beginning of the end even though we didn't know it at the time yeah you're right all the hardware really that had been created was created before he left that's right number 10 is yours Jeff number 10 the Amiga 500 For the ST, it was smooth sailing from 1985 to 1988. They owned much of the European 16-bit market, and there's pretty popular in USA, too, in small niches. Atari had one of their best years ever in 1987, selling Atari ST, XEGS 7800, and even the 2600, along with the XE computers. However, the Amiga 500 was an ST killer. It had more colors, 4096 versus 512, which was really important back then, plus superior graphics with the blitter chip and copper and other chips. It was basically an Atari 800, a super Atari 800, and was priced competitively. It ate the ST's lunch in the coming years and became the de facto machine for 16-bit computer users. Atari made a comeback with the STE, TT, and Falcon, but it was too little, too late. Yeah, it's scary. I mean, Amiga 500 basically was a murderer. They murdered the ST. Yeah. That's scary. I didn't even realize it. All I knew was that the games in the ST magazines started to get thinner and thinner as the years went on. Okay, I didn't realize it until I started reading Retro Gamer magazine, and they stopped. They never really talked about the ST in them all. I thought, you know, I mean, we had all the magazines. Yeah. It was hugely popular, and then basically Retro Gamer magazine is like, oh, it never happened. So, like, I don't know if revisionist history or not. I know. think they're all Amiga guys that, that's why they never thought the st was good but it was it had lots of great stuff i mean again there are a lot of games that started on the st that the amiga guys won't admit were st games first like dungeon master for example but deep down they know it and maybe that scares them hmm? i don't know let's not okay. they have to make their own podcast about shit yeah. number nine the playstation the playstation scared us in 1994 why because we were huge atari fans and the jaguar had just been released and we wanted it to be good. We really, really wanted the Jaguar to be the the 64-bit Jaguar to be the next big games console. We wanted Atari to win. The games at least look good in the boxes, even though Cybermorph is just, the packing is just dreadful. But we, we wanted it, we wanted the Jaguar to be the thing. We wanted Atari Corp to come back. It looked like they were concentrating on games again. But, uh, but then the PlayStation was announced in 94 
right after the Jaguar had kind of a rough Christmas season in 93, but was coming around. Um, and then uh, that was basically it. The PlayStation announced that it killed off the Jaguar and that was it. And that's where the PlayStation is another murderer, just like the Mega 500, a scary murderer. Okay, so number eight, scary sysops. <laughs> we had our versions here. The guy who ran the Death Star, Sarge from the uh, from the BBS. Yeah, so so scary. So sysops in 1984 when we first got our modem, they were like gods, but they were like scary gods. So, so anyone doesn't know what a sysop is. A sysop is a person who ran a BBS system that you would call up with your modem, but but sysops were like the lords of their domains. And when you called up, they could, they could knock you off. You know, it, it was fun to like go chat with them. And some of them are really nice that the guy who ran video BBS, that got people who ran swaps BBS or the local BBSs. But there was a BBS called the Death Star. And the guy who ran that was super scary. And he, and he would kick you off if you were on too, too long. And, you know, he wouldn't let you download anything unless you uploaded some, something first. And he just seemed like really scared. And I remember one time we went to visit a different sysop at his house to, um, to like copy games and stuff. I can't remember who, what his name was, but we made the mistake of telling him that the, the guy from the Death Star scared us. And then we went home and we were kicked off the Death Star because not only do sysops scary alone, they're scary because they talk to each other. We, we loved being able to communicate with other people in 1984 with our modem in 1985, but it was, it was kind of scary because these guys were like either older adults or shut-ins and stuff and really didn't know that much about them. And, you know, we were just kids. Okay, number seven, Steve. Tell us about this dude. George Plimpton. George Plimpton scared us. Why? Because he was the guy on the Intellivision commercials who compared the Intellivision sports games to the Atari VCS sports games. And, I mean, he scared us because he was right. The Intellivision sports games looked way better than the Atari VCS games. And you can't really compare Intellivision MLB baseball to home run. Home run no. is, like, over the line. And MLB baseball is, like, a real baseball game. Yeah. At least you could play home run, I think, with one player, though. But... Um, I can't really remember if there's a one-player game or not, but but I know that um, that MLB baseball you couldn't. We had to play with two players, right? Yes. Yeah. So most of the but, so the original uh, uh, sports games on the television were all two-player games. Yeah. So it scared us that the television sports games were so much better than these games. We didn't want it to be true, but deep down we knew it was true. Honorable mention: Alan Alda. Why? Because he still won't give the interview to Kay Savitz, and he needs to. Come on, Alan. That's pretty scary. What does Alan Alda do? I mean, Kay, that would be an awesome land of an interview. I've heard that he really enjoyed his Atari computer, though. I'd love to hear an interview with him. Now, what do you think about number six? Number six, shovelware. The whole concept of shovelware scares us. The whole thing. It didn't scare us at the time well, until we, we realized what, what it meant. <laughs> yeah, we didn't realize what it So the worst games showing up in bargain bins at local stores, the worst games we purchased were... Space Cavern, Marauder by Sierra, by the way of Tiger Vision, and Jawbreaker by Sierra, by the way of Tiger Vision. But by the way, it's it's funny to read um, Ken Williams' autobiography and realize that these are also scary for Sierra because they yeah. lost, they almost went out of business because of these Atari VCS games they made. Exactly. And then Atari ST shovelware, um, not so bad, but we bought lots of game compilations. And this was we this was when we first started. 
buying games for the ST from Europe, we started by buying game compilations. And some of it, usually game compilation had one good game and three mediocre games. Yeah. I remember the one that frustrated me the most was RoboCop because I could never get past like the, the, the first 10 seconds of RoboCop. I didn't know how to do it. I died every single time. And that's why Shovelware. Shovelware scared me because I was worried I would buy, spend my hard-earned money on, on a game that just was terrible. And you couldn't return it. But um, to me, Marauder was the worst, even though I think now people kind of like it. But, I, but back then, like, I had to imagine that these little triangles on the screen were like stormtroopers or something and were, were fighting out of the Death Star. But it I'm really gonna... was just, just, I was so sad. And I think so, we spent 20 bucks on it, too. Yeah, we spent a lot on Marauder. In fact, up for then. Marauder actually, the core gameplay of Marauder, where they actually, the, you, it's a little bit like Berserk, and the guys chase you based on almost A-star style pathfinding, which is mm -hmm. a really technically difficult pathfinding in video games. So they do a great job. But the core of it is, it's, it's almost like they took this great concept and made it, no, made it no fun. Like, once you're done with, like, one gameplay session, you never need to play it again. Yeah, you don't need to play it. There's nothing there. That was the problem. It was there's nothing to keep you come, coming back. Number five, 5,200 controllers. Yes, Scary. they were bad. Yeah, scary 5200 controllers because this meant that all the Atari's market research that they did in 1981 and 1982 was crap because these controllers were bad. And yes, we know the replacements now. We know, you know, some people like them, but come on, they were horrible. The system could have sold 10 million units, not 1 million, without these designed by committee controllers. Second up, just back in line, the 7800 pain line controllers. They at least work as controllers, but my God, are they hard to hold? Yeah, I, I, I hate, I hate it. I absolutely detest the seventy hundred controller. I mean, the, the game pad is that Nintendo made such a better controller, yeah, um, than those joysticks. So, all right, number four is yours. Incredibly scary, number four: the USA video game crash of nineteen eighty-three. Especially for us. It was great for kids because games became cheap, but we had no idea why. <laughs> yeah, but we, had no, we also had no idea it was happening until Electronic Games told us that it was happening. Right, and I still really didn't believe it was happening until it was actually happening. Well, I think because we got into computers at that point, we didn't really notice it too much. Yeah, sure. But I mean, we would spend our money on stuff like the Vectrex and the supercharger hoping that they would be great and then they right. would they would suddenly go out of you know those companies suddenly went out of business too. that was so, the problem we spent a lot of money on things that became deprecated in a sense very quickly yes so i know that that the video game crash didn't affect other places as much as it did here but for us it was almost like once we realized it looked like video games were over yeah that was scary. i mean when you're when you're when your main platforms are uh, the zx spectrum and the Commodore 64 in Europe, those are your video game platforms. They never yeah, went yeah, away. Yeah. They didn't have a problem. No, we, we had the problem. It was because anything based or set, centered around Atari, ColecoVision, and television, all that stuff and was just cartridges, bad. especially because they're so expensive to make and sell. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're, your games are already cost $2.99. There's no reason for a shakeout. No. Number three, vaporware. Vaporware scares us because it was what Atari was known for in in the later part of the 80s. The later part when they were Atari in the 80s was Vaporware. Vaporware, vaporware started media. after after um, uh, Bushnell, too. 
Yeah, after Bushnell, right, right. So, so Bushnell didn't really announce a lot of products that didn't come out, but they did when the marketing guys took over and said, no, we're not gonna do the Cosmos. And no, we're not gonna, hey, this graduate keyboard for the Atari VCS is great, eh, no, forget it. Or we're gonna announce the 1450 XLD, the most amazing 8-bit computer ever announced, according to me, and that never came out. The 16-bit console that never came out, the Sword Quest, what was the Sword Quest game that never came Airworld out? Airworld didn't come out. I mean, I mean, there's so many things, you know, Atari became known for not releasing things. And right. that's, that's a problem. You know, that's why any new announcements, you know, scare us from Atari. They did back then and they even do now. Yeah, they do now, <laughs> especially. We, we know pretty much things aren't going to arrive. Like the, the new Atari had these, I guess they was a licensed product, but there were these watches, these game watches. No, people just lost their money on on Kickstarter or whatever it was or Indiegogo when they came out. Even though it was a licensed product, it was, it was still with the um, kind of Atari name on it. Number two, uh, we're getting down to the nitty gritty here. Number two, JTS plus Infograms plus Atari Box and the VCS, the new one, the 400-800 VCS. Oh, God. Terribly named system. First, JTS, Hasbro, Infograms, Atari SA, all holders of Atari IP since Atari Corp went out of business in 1996. Infograms, which was a decent computer games company in the 80s, now owns the Atari IP. They made speaker hats, casinos, maybe hotels, cryptocurrency, and finally recently, some decent little games based on Atari IP. Well, and even the Haunted House we're going to talk about next. Yes, and Haunted House we're talking about now. Second, even if Atari SA was doing great, it would still be killing Atari fans. We want all the IP back together. The stuff Warner owns too, everything, all in one place, being carefully curated and cared for. We want Bushnell back at the helm or Seamus Blackley. We just want it done right. Yeah, we want it done right. We want, the, we want the history done right. That's all. That's all we ask for. And third, the Atari VCS, the new one scares us because they use the Atari 400-800 name IP for it and it Why? makes no sense at all. It scares us they don't seem to know what they are doing. But we hope it works out. Yeah, I hope it works out, but I mean, come on. Just the, the sort of mixing the, the names and stuff just is just weird. Okay, number one. The date, July 1st, 1984. That's the date that Atari was sold to Jack Tremiel, the saddest day of sad days in Atari history. And while the Tremiels did a pretty good job with what they had, I mean, how could they, you know, you can't argue that they did too badly because they had a huge year, even by 1987, they put out a bunch of stuff, they, you know, um, but it just wasn't what Atari was. Put it this way, when the, when the STs and the other things came out, they weren't losing a million dollars a day. No, no, but here's the thing, because they had to break the company apart, because half the coin ops went away. And, you know, I mean, think of all those that those times with like, you know, you're, you're hearing of Atari working with Lucasfilm and Atari working with Steven Spielberg and making games. And, you know, they're making coin ops and the coin ops are feeding the home systems. And, and then they're starting to make games for all the other platforms and stuff. You're like, wow, this is a huge company doing amazing things that, you know, should be lasting into the future. And then it all just implodes July 1st, 1984. Yeah, I know. And I don't, even, I don't think we heard about it until July 15th, 1984. And you know we heard about it? We took a train trip with our mom to visit our uncle in San Francisco. Because mom couldn't drive, or wouldn't drive. Dad wouldn't take us. 
to visit our uncle anymore. And so we took a train ride up there and we took a train ride in July and we went up there. And I think the first or second day we were there, you know, our uncle's like, oh yeah, because he was in the Silicon Valley and they, they were Commodore fans. And they're like, oh, you know, Jack Tremiel, you know, ruined Commodore and I was going to ruin Atari. I'm like, what are you talking about? And we hadn't even heard this. He had to tell us because it was all over the San Jose Mercury news because that's their big stories up there about what was going on. So that's how we heard about it. And it was it was just devastating because we, we were like, what what happened? We just got our Atari Hunter. Like, what's going to happen to all of our stuff? And, right. you know, it was it was like a whole era had just imploded. And don't get me wrong, the Tremils did as good as they could, but that didn't matter. Yeah, they did what they could. With yeah. the remnants of what was there. Okay, so the next, what we're going to jump into now after those is a story about a Halloween story, <laughs> sort of. What's it about? Why don't you introduce our Halloween story? So this Halloween story is about the, the Atari VCS game Haunted House, about the ver- the new version that was released in 2010, and what it meant to us because it was the one and only time Atari contacted us to help them with something on our website. And so this is Apert Rocket meets Atari Haunted House. Atari Haunted House. The day Atari came knock, knock, knocking on our front door. Introduction. Back in 2010, we were running a very successful indie retro game blog named 8bitrocket.com with a sub 100 Alexa ranking, which at the time was really good. It got us into E3 with press passes, book contracts, and even free tickets to the Flash Game Developers Conference. It also caught the eye of at least one press person at Atari SA. This was a little bit before the era of the social media manager, but this was someone who worked at Atari, followed Atari interest on the internet, and reached out to see if we'd give the game a review. We played the game for a couple hours, gave it a review, and then started a contest to give away a second copy that Atari had provided us. Here is that original 2010 review. Back in 82, Atari released Haunted House for the Atari 2600, not 1981 as is stated on the back of the game box. 1981 is the copyright date, but the game was released in 1982. Amid pressure from competing platforms like Mattel and Television and third-party games for the 2600 like Activision's Pitfall, Atari needed to release games that had more staying power than the simple arcade translations they had been creating for many years. Both Superman and Adventure released in 1979 showed that the 2600 could have more involved games, but the lack of much of anything else with any kind of depth was becoming a huge problem for the platform. The 2600 version of Haunted House started as Graves Manor, an awesome name by the way, and then went through a few iterations, Mystery Mansion, Nightmare Manor, etc., before Atari Marketing, using their knack for stripping almost everything interesting out of late-era Atari 2600 cartridges, 
two-player Pac-Man anyone that forced Todd Fry to leave out the up-and-down Pac-Man animations? Settled on the name Haunted House. It was programmed by James Andreessen, the same program responsible for the miraculous real sports baseball. The game was set up in the titular Haunted House. Your job was to traverse the four floors, each with six rooms, of the mansion to find pieces of a relic that would let you get the heck out. Spiders, ghosts, and a scepter that scared away the ghosts figured prominently as well. One of the main features of the game was darkness. In the regular game mode, only walls are visible. You ignited matches with the fire button that would light up the area around your player. Your player was a set of googly eyes. Igniting matches was the only way to see the various objects and collect them. The ghost's arrival extinguished your matches, and hitting any of the baddies cost one of your nine lives. The paradigm of chase in the darkness lit only by a match was the key ingredient that set this game apart from many others. It helped transform what was essentially a maze chase and collect game into a deeper, more interesting and compelling contest. The original Atari 2600 game became a kind of cult hit as it helped pave the way for a new genre known as survival horror. As pointed out by GameSpy's Christopher Buckler a few years ago, the game was a bit of a revelation when it was released. It was still a bit crude compared to some of the competition. But at the same time, was Atari serious about making games that could compete on the same level as Activision and a Magic? Unfortunately, Haunted House was followed up by the adventure titles E.T. and the Sword Quest series. Those games had the dubious distinction of showing some definite promise, but also the serious limitations of the Atari 2600 at the very same time. The new 2010 version of Atari's Haunted House is refreshing for a couple reasons. It's the first time in maybe forever that an original Atari 2600 title, one that was not already an arcade game, had received a full commercial makeover. Second, the game does not shoot for the stars, but reigns in its scope and keeps it close to the original. Your job is to make your way through a darkened house, searching for a magic urn, dodging ghosts and using limited light sources to find your way. In a very basic way, it is essentially the same game. That's okay though, as the basic gameplay mechanic was a very interesting one. You start in the first dark room of the house, viewing your character from a three-fourths overhead perspective. You cannot leave the house through the front door, so you must find another way out, and hopefully the magic urn at the same time. You have a single light source, your cell phone, a pretty clever update by the way, that is stolen by a ghost very quickly before you even realize what you need to do in the game. Your player is still a set of googly eyes, an obvious nod to the graphics of the original game. When you activate your light source, part of the room and your body are illuminated. After your cell phone is used up or stolen by the ghost, you go about the various rooms searching chests, closets, trunks, and other places to find objects. Much of the time, these objects are additional light sources that help you illuminate the darkness and continue searching. All light sources have a limited life, so you need to be on constant lookout for more matches, candles, cell phones, and other items. You can hold on to two objects at once, so you need to be very careful about what you choose to hold at any particular time. Areas of the house are divided by locked floors and doors. 
there are various keys that must be located in each level that will open locked doors so you can continue searching for more light sources and other treasures. In later floors and levels, powerful weapons can be found to fight off the ghosts. Ghosts and other baddies operate a lot like they did in the original game. They will quote unquote blow out your light source if you get too close, but instead of killing you instantly, they freeze you in fear and you need to shake out of it. This is where the Wiimote waggle comes in. Shaking with fear drains some of your health. Once your health is gone, you die, but you can restart at the last save point. Those save points come in the form of fireplaces that when lit become a safe area. These fireplaces also damage nearby ghosts. Later in the game, you get torches and other objects that can be used to damage the ghosts directly. But when you start the game, you are nearly defenseless. As a simple game design, it is very enjoyable, especially in cooperative multiplayer mode. I watched Steve and his 12-year-old play cooperatively, and the game had us all hooked for a couple hours straight. However, in the early part of the game, you really don't have any way to defend yourself from the ghosts, but you still need to search for keys and find matches. This makes the ghosts a bit of a non-issue, because even though they hurt you, there's not much you can do about it, and after a while you just ignore them by waggling the Wiimote when necessary to unfreeze yourself. This works in a two-player game, because if you die, you can restart with the other player and continue the game instantly. However, I'm not sure it'd be the same in a single player game. Steve and his 12 year old did not finish the game, but the packet says it consists of 20 levels. However, it also says there are four houses with four levels each. That's 16. I'm not sure which is correct, but I do know that it took two hours to finish the first house. So the entire game should take about eight to 10 hours. There are three difficulty levels. So if you play them all, there should be 30 or more hours of game here. However, while the basic game design is compelling, it does get a bit repetitive. So replaying all three difficulty levels might not be on your game playing calendar. All told, Steve, his daughter and I had a really fun time playing the two player multiplayer version of the game. And she asked to play with him again, multiple times after I had left Steve's house. As a father, that was all he could ask for. The game has some glaring performance issues, mainly with slowdown at unpredictable times. Also, the waggle control for getting away from the ghost did not feel complete. Still, for most of the basic controls, the game engine worked well. The game's theme is scary, but besides some sounds and presentation, it's not really scary at all. Inside jokes referring to other games and media with similar things abound, so keep your eyes and ears out for them. So that's the end of the original review. Now we've updated it for 2020 with some new observations. For what it is, Haunted House proper distribution should have been something like Xbox Live Arcade, Steam, or WiiWare. Since the Wii didn't make WiiWare accessible to the masses, and there were problems for sales from all brands except Nintendo, I can see why the choice was made to go with a retail game for the Wii. However, the scope and features of this game have download written all over it. What is included in Haunted House feels like a good value as a download title, but it got lost in the shuffle as a retail game. The good news is in 2020, the game is still available on Steam for $5.99, although I'm sure the play mechanics were adapted slightly for the standard game controllers. But I digress. At the time, it looked like Atari SA was really onto something. So I'm going to dig back into our old review of the game from 2010 and find the suggestions we gave Atari for future game releases based on games from Atari's classic catalog. 
By the way, some of these could be applied to the latest Atari offerings in 2020 and beyond. Atari has been doing some of these things with the new VCS. Can you spot where they might be doing well and where they're failing? Number one, develop a look and feel for packaging and presentation that echoes history, but shows that it's something new. The packaging and in-game graphics for Haunted House are well done, but do not echo their pedigree in any way. There is some rich history with this game, and it should at least be shown on the package in some way. Think about how Nintendo treats Mario. A Mario game might be brand new, but they still echo the past and you always know what you're getting. Atari needs to set the price point to that of other downloadable games, about $9.99. Two-player multiplayer games are really enjoyable and worth the purchase on Xbox Live or Steam, but on the Wii, the $19.99 price point feels a bit too high. The state of the Wii Virtual Console is not Atari's fault. This is probably the only way they can get it released. The waggle control in the Wii version is unnecessary. For a full Wii packaged game, it might be required, but since there are no other Wiimote controls in the game, it feels out of place. But it might be good for them to consider the controls on all the platforms they are targeting and make sure that they are appropriate. Next is the end of our original review. Most of it is applicable for Atari branded games today, but the platforms have changed ever so slightly. Okay, a lot. In final analysis, Atari's updated version of Haunted House retains some of the charm from the original game while updating the overall scope and adding a nice two-player cooperative mode. Aside from some obvious limitations, this limited light chase in the darkness treasure hunt can be addictive. It doesn't appear to fit as a Wii retail game, it would be a nice title for any downloadable or mobile platform. Also, as a mild kid-friendly holiday-themed game for October, it's not a bad title. We hope this game is a success, so we can see further updates of games like Yar's Revenge, Caverns of Mars, Food Fight, Scrapyard Dog, Gates of Zendikon, Iron Soldier, and many others. In 2020, some of this is happening with the Evercade, which is great, but we have not heard about any of these particular titles when it comes to the Atari VCS. Atari has published some games on Windows and other platforms. As of today, these are the titles that are available for download on Steam. Atari Vault with multiplayer capability. Steve and I played combat on this over the Infobon. It was really fun. The Atari Vault 50 game add-on includes some arcade 2600 and 5200 games. This is also released for other platforms. Still, no Atari 8-bit, ST, 7800, STE, Lynx, or Jaguar games have been released by Atari. Star Raiders was released with 24 mostly negative reviews on Steam. I do recall a Yars Revenge being released, but I don't find it anywhere, on Steam at least. An update to Haunted House called Cryptic Caves was released in 2014 and has 19 negative reviews and was pulled from the download store. Although I never played this, based on the 2010 version, it might have been kind of fun if it was still available. In 2010, we also had a contest to give away a copy of the game for the Wii. Here are the rules. Tell us about a classic Atari game, Coinop 2600-5200, 7800-8-bit, ST, Lynx, or Jaguar, that you think Atari should remake like Haunted House. That's it. The outcome of the contest. We'd like to congratulate Sid Lexia for his winning entry in our Wii Atari Haunted House Contest. We asked readers to describe an Atari game that they would like to see remade in the 21st century by Atari. Here was Sid's idea. 
without a doubt, SwordQuest 2011, with all four Atari 2600 cartridges being combined into one disc or four separate pieces of DLC. Not only was SwordQuest overly ambitious for its time, but it's never finished. So not only would this be an upgrade, it would finally give old school gamers a chance to play the Air World section. We agree, finishing something the original Atari had started but never finished would be awesome. Epilogue. Our pre-social media relationship with Atari lasted a short time. They never sent us another game, and to be honest, we didn't really want one. While our thoughts on Haunted House for the Wii were genuine, it was a fun little game. It felt so wrong. We felt compelled to make sure the review was positive, even if the game was not very good. But thankfully, it was a fine little game, but that didn't matter. Even the thought that we might have skewed our review to gain more favor by Atari SA didn't sit right with us. We didn't like being in that position. Even if we wanted to though, we never had the chance to continue our relationship with Atari. In a few months, we were both quartered away from our stable corporate jobs and this fledgling indie game website. We were convinced to join a newly growing gaming board, a decision that became the biggest blunder in both of our careers. It was a terrible mistake that we are still legally bound from ever talking about or lest face legal retribution. Talk about Halloween. Now that is something really scary. Suffice it to say, nothing was ever the same after that. Hey everybody, it's Bill from Atari Bytes. Every week on my show I play a great old game, then I read an original short story I wrote inspired by that game. Loosely inspired. Okay, often completely different. Sometimes not even based on any sort of reality. In contrast, on Into the Vertical Blank, which you're listening to right now, you get real stories about real people and what these games mean to them. So keep listening. Hey Jeff, you know, um, yeah, that was a weird that was a weird time back then. In it was a weird time. We, we, we had this this website that was going gangbusters, and or at least it, it was because it's all about flash game development. It was we going to, but we weren't making much money off of it. No, but we got into like E three and stuff, and, and we had a high enough ratings that we could get press passes and stuff of things, which was really yeah. cool. But it was all going to go away anyway because Flash was just about to die. And but so, what we missed was the rise of Atari fandom that came right afterwards. I know because because we did we did like a we did like a podcast and stuff, and then we kind of just kind of faded away. And in the meantime, all this you know amazing Atari fandom started up that we missed. Yeah, and it really kind of depressed. There was nothing. We, there was very little. I no. think actually, um, they would contact us to do stuff because there was there was nothing online about Atari. Very little. I mean, yeah. Um, I mean, little. so I mean, uh, so Kurt and them were doing things right. And, and Marty had his classicgamer.com and there are things going on, but there wasn't a lot. When you went and looked and I tried to sum up, do my news summaries and stuff, there was very little going on. Very little. Yeah. So, so, and, and we kind of let it go because we're like, ah, nobody cares about the stuff. Like we were, we would have blogs and, and stories about Atari and reviving Atari content. And we even did a couple little podcasts, but it's like, nobody seemed to care. And yeah, so, you cares. know, just like most of our lives, we gave up early. And then Atari fandom exploded af afterwards. Yes, exactly. <laughs> when we weren't around. When we weren't around.
exactly. It took, that's I mean, it took another, I guess. It took mom passing away for us to decide that we were going to get back into it again. For real. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's Halloween 2020. Especially, I mean, we're living in such a scary time anyway that there's really Halloween is kind of a joke. Yeah. <laughs> Halloween's kind of a joke. I, so, uh, Steve, what are you? Are your any of your kids going to do something for Halloween this year? No, we've got nothing planned right now. So this is nothing. what we're doing. I'm going to. I'm looking for some Day of the Dead heads that I can put outside. I'm gonna, I'm going to put a bowl of candy outside. I'm going to turn off the light. Or I'm going to turn the what? And then. I, well, the boys and I are going over to CVS, and I'm going to let them go trick or treating at CVS. Yeah, I'll probably would, I'll probably buy the kids some candy, the and same so they way. can pick out older. whatever they want, and they, so they can pick out whatever they want, and so that's what we're going to do. Cool. Okay. Hey, Steve, into yeah. the vertical blank, Steve. Into the vertical blank, Jeff. Into the vertical blank. Happy hollow scream. <laughs> Welcome to the haunted theater. <laughs> Please watch your step. Follow the green arrows through the maze. You can have some yummy candy at the end if you make it through alive. <laughs> Lunch will be served promptly at noon. Volunteers are needed in the kitchen at 11.30. <laughs> Welcome to the Haunted Theater. <laughs> Please watch your step. Follow the green arrows through the maze. And you can have some candy at the end if you make it through alive. <laughs> Happy Hollow Scream! <laughs> you are needed in the kitchen to help with lunch preparation. There's room for one more. Room for one more! <laughs> Hi, this is 8-Bit Jeff here. Uh, that was a recording for a haunted house that we made in 2001. That was my scary voice. Now, I'd like to take you out with another Tony Longworth hit. This is Dance Me This. Happy Hollow Scream! Into the vertical
into the vertical plank. Next frame calculated, prepare to write new data, V-blank ending. An 8-Bit Rocket Studios production.